was my senior year of high school and the first day of AP calculus. <laughs> senior year, you fight the temptation to kind of live through the final lap of high school. And a name like calculus really does not help you fight that temptation. But on the first day of calculus class, I sat down and something convinced me I was going to be okay. I didn't open the book and say, oh, this is going to be a breeze. The content's so easy. That's not what convinced me. I, I didn't even see the syllabus and say, oh, we barely get any homework in this class. This will be a breeze. It really wasn't something that convinced me I was going to be fine. It was someone. It was my teacher, Mr. Pison. Again, I'll clarify with negatives. Mr. Pison is not a cool teacher. He's not the teacher who takes his kids outside so that they can enjoy the sunshine. No, if I had to sum up Mr. Pison, I would call him a dorky dad. <laughs> Mr. Pison isn't the entertaining teacher. He's not going to bring in his guitar. He's not going to do fancy videos or PowerPoints. No, you know what Mr. Pison is? Mr. Pison is just a good teacher. The man knows calculus so well that he can actually explain it to people who've never heard anything about it in a way that they understand, in a way that they can comprehend and learn. And it's not just that. Mr. Pison isn't just a skillful teacher. Mr. Pison is a wise and a caring teacher. You walk into calculus class with Mr. Pison, and it is impossible to be sad in calculus class. He just always has a smile on his face. Mr. Pison knows how to encourage his students when they feel like giving up. And Mr. Pison knows how to challenge his students to bring out the best in them. Mr. Pison is just a good teacher. Friends, what does the church need to grow? What does the church need to survive over the long haul? What does the church need to be protected and even nourished? There's a lot we could say. We could and should say that we need the watchful care of our Heavenly Father. We could and should say that we need the intercession of our Savior, the Son of God. We could and should say that we need the abiding and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes and amen. But God uses means to provide growth and protection and care for his church. And the Apostle Paul talks about one of the primary means or ways God does this. In Titus chapter 1, Paul looks at these newly established churches on the island of Crete. And he longs that they would be established, that they would be set up for long-term faithfulness and direction and success and growth. And the first way he says God will do that for them, the first means or way that Paul points to is not some method of ministry. It's not some style or fad that they need to keep up with. The first way that God provides protection and care and growth for his church is people. Specifically, pastors. Like I saw the main point of Titus 1, 5 to 9 is that God uses pastors to care for, guard, 
and grow his church. Not even just grow numerically, but grow spiritually. Now, to clarify, pastors aren't the only people God uses to accomplish this. But like good teachers, or a good coach, or they're even out there, even a good boss, God intends to use pastors to bless his people. He intends to use pastors to cause his church to flourish in the gospel. So if you're not with me yet, turn with me to Titus 1, verses 5 to 9. Find it around page 999 in the Bible's provider, which looked like this. You can follow along as I read. After I'm done reading, I'll say this is God's word. If you agree with that, we'll say together, thanks be to God. Titus 1, 5 to 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in the order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Quick housekeeping notes. A lot of you will remember this, but it will help to remember as we go throughout this sermon. The Bible uses the titles or offices of elder, pastor, and overseer interchangeably means they all refer to the same group of people. Even here, if you notice verse 6 and 7, very quickly, it goes from elder to overseer, talking about the same group. So if you hear me using different titles, I'm referring to the same group of people, just to clarify from the outset. With that said, it's easy to look at these verses and focus just on the what of them. Meaning it's easy to look at these verses and just see them as a job description for pastors and nothing else. They are a job description for pastors. However, Paul writes this because of a certain situation. He writes them in a certain context. So as much as it's easy to see the what of these verses, I want us to keep an eye on the why of these verses. Why does Paul want Titus to put pastors in place throughout the churches in Crete? Well, Paul has certain goals or concerns for the churches in Crete, and those goals and concerns actually shape the kind of men he wants to serve as pastors. So Paul has at least four goals or concerns for the churches in Crete. He wants them to have order. He wants them to receive good care. He wants them to have models of the gospel. And he wants them to receive sound instruction. Those are the ends. Pastors are the means to those ends. Make sense? Okay. First goal or concern. Paul wants the churches in Crete to have order. Look at verse 5 again. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
Now, a little background will help us understand this verse and even the entire letter of Titus. When Paul writes, I left you in Crete, what we naturally assume that Paul and Titus labored in Crete together. And it very well could have been during the time described by the book of Acts in chapter 27. It's toward the end of the book of Acts. Paul sails to Rome with a large contingent of people, and he's going to Rome because he appealed his court case all the way up to the highest of command, to Caesar himself. But on their way to Rome and sailing in the Mediterranean, winds and storms slowed down their journey, and they had to make many pit stops along the way. And one of those pit stops was on the island of Crete, in between Greece and Italy. So Titus 1, verse 5, it implies that the work in Crete started off really well, but it also implies that Paul couldn't stay long. And this happened plenty of times in Paul's missionary journeys. You know, Paul seeks to follow Jesus' great commission to make disciples of Christ. Now, to clarify with that, Paul didn't want to make as many disciples as he could in just one place. Paul wants to make disciples in as many places as he could. Paul has a heart to push the gospel to places where it hasn't been heard yet. We see that in the book of Acts. We even see it in the book of Romans. He writes Romans, he tells them, I longed to go to Spain, the edge of the known world at the time. Paul wants to go to places where the glorious news that God the Father is reconciling sinners to himself through the work of God the Son. He lived in their place, died in their place, and rose again victoriously in their place. Brothers and sisters, the heart that Paul has should be the heart that we have. For places who haven't heard and don't have any access to this glorious good news of Jesus Christ, to hear it, to take the good news of Jesus to places where it's not known. We believe, in, in light of Psalm 67 and so many other places, that God is worthy of worship from all the nations of the earth, not even just this nation. So, Paul goes out to places where, he have, where the gospel hasn't been heard, including a place like Crete. But if we kept it there, we might be confused by Paul's strategy, right? Because it seems like Paul goes to a new place, he preaches the gospel in this, in this new place, and then once the first people respond in repentance and faith in Jesus, then Paul's job is done. He says, this is great, guys. My work is over. I'll see you later. But that's not the case even here throughout the book of Acts and here in Titus. We see Paul's heart for those who have responded in faith. <coughs> he checks back in on how the churches he helped to establish are doing. Hence, though all the letters of the New Testament, he helped to establish the church in Galatia, in Thessalonica, in Ephesus. And so, later on, he writes letters to them. How are you guys doing? This is what I'm hearing. You should keep following Christ. One way that Paul checks back in on and continues to care for the churches he helped to establish. One way Paul does that is by setting up pastors in those churches. Acts 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas are ministering together, and they circle back to cities where they've been to before. And what do they do in that city? They set up elders. Here in Titus 1, the church is established in Crete, and now what is Paul doing to care for those churches? He sets up elders. But why? 
Why does he want them to have elders? I think verse 5 gives, gives us a clue. He wants the churches to have order. Think of it like this. We used a, sort of a business example last week. Think of a startup company. It's new, it's techie, it's run by millennials. You're not sure if you can trust it, but it's a startup company. It has a lot of potential. And like any startup company, you need a group of new employees in order to run the thing. And so let's say the head of the company gets his employees, and they're starting on the first day. Everybody's excited. They get three days with the head of the company. They learn about the company's values, its culture, a little bit how to, uh, how to do their jobs. And they go into work on the fourth day of that week. And the head of the company starts off the day and says, listen, guys, I think you know everything that you need to know. I'm going to go start a new company, and you're going to be here. Okay? Good luck. How do you think that company would do? How would the new employees respond? I mean, maybe they would try to stay together, but after a while, you would have competing ideas. And probably fights sooner or later. No one would give direction. And if it stays like that for any period of time, my guess is that company would pretty soon fizzle out. Paul wants to have pastors in Crete. Because Paul wants the churches in Crete to have long-term stability, direction, and order. That's good for the churches in Crete. And I think we take this for granted. God intends for every kind of human authority to bless those who are underneath it. God intends for every kind of human authority to bless those who are underneath it. I think that's so hard to believe because we've just experienced the opposite of that so many times. Consider these words from 2 Samuel 23 among the last words that God spoke through King David. The Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout on the earth. Paul wants the churches in Crete to have long-term stability, direction, and order. So he says, you guys need pastors. But he goes on. He tells Titus, it's not just anybody who can fill this position. You've got to have a certain type of guy who can fill this position of pastor. And that's where we turn to next. Look with me again at verse 6 and the first part of verse 7. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Again, there's plenty of what in these verses. What does the husband of one wife mean? What does it mean that children must be believers? Remember, I don't want us to lose track of the why. Why must these men have these qualifications? Well, if we were to sum it up, Paul wants these kinds of men to serve as pastors because he wants the church to receive good care. Only certain kind of men can provide good care to the church. And that just briefly reminds us that, yes, pastors are preachers, but pastors aren't just 
creatures. They're far more than that. Hebrews 13, 17 says that pastors keep watch over the souls of those in the church. Keep watch over the souls of those in the church as those who will have to give an account to God for them. Pastors are more than just preachers. So Paul wants to ensure the church receives good care. So what kind of men should be put in the position of pastors? Well, a man who is put in the position of providing care should be an overall man of integrity. That's what Paul means in the catch-all phrase of above reproach. Now, above reproach, don't get this confused. Above reproach doesn't mean perfect, because then only Jesus could be a pastor. It's worth a sneak peek at the kind of people that uh, that Titus had to choose from in Crete. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Paul writes, we, he includes himself, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Titus, this is a lot of guys you have to choose from. (laughs) So when Paul says above reproach, he must mean that God's grace has proven to transform this person's life. He must mean that this person has demonstrated that God has caused him to leave behind his sin and follow Christ. And currently, he is open to no serious accusation. Paul wants the church to receive good care. If that's the case, then a potential pastor, this only makes sense, a potential pastor should prove that he's capable of giving good care. And where is the first arena where a pastor might prove that he's capable of caring for others? Well, it's his house, his own family. Now again, to clarify, Paul does not disqualify those who are single or those who don't have kids from being pastors. If he did disqualify them, not only would he disqualify himself, he would also disqualify Jesus. It seems that Paul assumes that most mature and qualified men will be married, and most married men will have kids. So the dynamic works like this. Titus, if you want to know how well somebody will take care of God's home, of God's house, in fact, that word steward that Paul uses is connected to caring for a home, he tells Titus, if you want to know how somebody will take care of God's house, then just look at how well he's taking care of his own house, his own home. Titus, the man's faithfulness to his wife will reflect his faithfulness to God. That's why the Bible describes our our covenant relationship with God so often with the image of of marriage. That's why the Bible often calls idolatry adultery. Our faithfulness to our spouse reflects our faithfulness to God. How well a a man will take care of God's house will show how well he uh, will be reflected how well he takes care of his own house. A man's nurturing, instruction, and discipline of his kids will show his capacity to nurture, instruct, and discipline the church. Just one quick note on even that requirement. The word for children in these verses, it indicates younger children who are still in the man's house. You can translate uh, his children are believers also as his children are faithful. 
Let me be clear. No parent can secure their children's salvation. And I don't think Paul is saying that here. Paul's main concern is that the kids in the home are respectful to their parents, not living in open rebellion. Maybe it's worth comparison to what Paul tells Titus in 1 Timothy 3. He writes there, An elder must manage his, ha- his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's another quick side note, just because there, there might be a lot of questions that are, arise from a passage like this. Whether it's Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 3, I'm persuaded that Paul limits the role of pastor to men. And you, we might read that and say, well, well, I think that's just Paul's preference. We might read that and say, well, maybe Paul looks out of the culture of the day and he says, well, this is how you don't step on anybody's toes. That was just the culture back then, but now there are different cultural considerations now. Well, I think you can say that with certain matters. You can say that with maybe head coverings, that women are wearing head coverings. That, that is a cultural expression limited to a time and a place. But especially when you compare this to a place like 1 Timothy 2, Paul bases his decision of pastors being men not on anything culturally. He bases it on the created order all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. And there it's clear that God created both men and women as having equal dignity, worth, and value. And yet he created them with different and harmonious roles. Those roles show up first in marriage and the family, and those roles extend to God's family in the church. That's really all I can say about it at this point. If you want to learn more into this, might I suggest two books that I highlighted this morning. The first book is How Can Women Thrive in the Local Church? And the second book is Can Women Be Pastors? They're both right up here. For you to check out. So, what's Paul's goal or concern? He wants the church to receive good care. He says the pastors are people who provide care. If they're going to be put into that kind of position, they have to prove that they're men of integrity. They have to prove that they're capable of giving good care. And I also think, too, they have to prove that they can be focused on the work of giving care for the church. Prove that they can be focused on the work. Look at verse 6, the last phrase of this. He says, not open to the charge. Who do you think this charge is coming from? Oh, Paul lays it out that much, but it would seem that this charge comes from those outside the church. Now, will those outside the church unfairly attack those inside the church? Of course, all the time. Jesus promises that. But here's, here's the rub in this situation. If a pastor's life if his home, if his family, if all those things constantly raise questions, constantly raise accusations, well then, that pastor's going to be really distracted from his work. And not only that, the church's reputation will be called into question as well. And then not only those things, it's going to introduce an unnecessary hurdle in front of the gospel. The gospel that's already offensive and filled with hurdles. Don't want to put any more in front of it. So, a pastor to care for God's house must show that he is capable of giving care before he's put into that position. And this opening qualification about a pastor's family, just as a little last application, I think this is a blessing and a good reminder 
to both pastors and churches. Here's what I mean. To pastors or potential pastors, and I am mainly preaching to myself here, to, for them to care for the church well, they first have to care for their families well. Good pastors work hard, but good pastors are not workaholics. These groups are not pitted against one another. It is not a competition. But I'll just state it for the record. My wife, God bless her, she's in ministry at the moment. My wife, and Lord willing, one day my children. Guys, they are more important to you than you are. I am a better pastor if that is the case. Again, it's not a competition. But to churches, this reminds us to give pastors space to invest time with their families, to be as best of dads and husbands as possible. Listen, as pastors, we want to be approachable. We want to be interruptible. We want to be flexible. But we do need boundaries between church life and home life. And, my friends, that is actually in the church's best interest. You will receive better care when the pastor's families are flourishing. What does Paul want for the church's increase? He wants them to have order. He wants them to receive good care. Thirdly, he wants them to have good models. He's not talking about pastors being physically attractive. <laughs> Your pastors will never don the covers of Men's House 19 or GQ. He wants pastors to be spiritually attractive. Back in Titus 1.1, Paul says one of his goals in ministry is to bring about knowledge that accords with godliness. Not just head, but heart and life. It's like he's telling Titus, pastors should be exhibit A that. Models of what it looks like for the gospel to shape someone's heart and life. If that's the case, then pastors should not display certain traits, and they should display other traits, and some negatives and some positives. Let's just go through those briefly. He lists these in the second half of verse 7 on into verse 8. First one up is arrogance. Again, we're going to keep our eye on the why, not just the what. Why is it important for churches that their pastors not have these traits? So the first one up is arrogance. Hopefully you don't need much convincing that it's not good for a church to have an arrogant pastor. But just in case you do need convincing, an arrogant pastor will take advantage and leverage his title to inappropriately pressure you. An arrogant pastor will think that he deserves his position, and at times, very often, think he is above his position. An arrogant pastor always thinks he's right and cannot be corrected. An arrogant pastor is always the smartest person 
An arrogant pastor wants everything to depend on him and go through him. And an arrogant pastor creates more arrogant people or he creates fearful people. He must not be quick-tempered. Models of the gospel, this is what you shouldn't be. It makes sense. If you're a hothead, then I don't think you're going to care for people very well. Quick-tempered people are irritable. They are not approachable. They are not patient. They are not gracious. They are not forgiving. They are not level-headed. They are not thick-skinned. They take any feedback as personal offense. Quick-tempered men make bad pastors. They must not be drunkards. Drunkards will have a bad reputation and thereby affect the reputation of Christ. Drunkenness betrays a lifestyle of a lack of self-control. Drunkenness or any destructive habit will take over a man's life so that either a, a potential pastor will have to hide that sin and be a hypocrite or he will, he will have to start to preach softly on sin and compromise the truth. Men can't be violent. Similar to his quick-tempered, violent men get their way by force. They dismiss Jesus' teaching, blessed are the peacemakers. Violent men are divisive. Violent men will use outbursts and tantrums to get their way. Bullies don't make good pastors. They are not greedy for gain. Their position, if, if that is the case, then their position will become a means to an end not the end itself. Pastors who are greedy treat ministry as a professional to build their resume, to, to attain a bigger platform, a bigger church, and they overlook the people who are right in front of them. These are the negative qualifications. Paul tells Titus, it's like he tells Titus, all right, Titus, let's get rid of some guys from the beginning, okay? <laughs> you have to at least clear this bar of not being a jerk to be a pastor. <laughs> and hopefully the bar is higher than that. So we, that brings us to the positive traits. Models of the gospel. Pastors should be models of hospitality, the opposite of greedy. They should be generous and flexible with their time, with their home, with their resources. Pastors should be a refuge and a relief to vulnerable and hurting people. Pastors should be lovers of good, that means these men don't just check boxes for their morals. They don't just keep up appearances. These men are genuine. They are sincere. You can tell that they delight in the Lord and serve Him with joy. These men are repentant, growing, and abiding followers of Christ, lovers of good. They are self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. They're able to listen and to keep their mouths shut sometimes. Upright and holy are traits normally used to describe God. So Paul uses these traits here. It's like a hint to Titus. These men should have God-like character. Should be disciplined. One commentator wisely observes that without discipline, all these other traits become moot. Pointless. People say it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to destroy. Pastors are to be models for how the gospel shapes a person. Models that Christ has freed us 
from the penalty of sin, and we rejoice. Models that Christ has freed us from the power of sin, and we can live holy. Models of what it means to live Christ-like, as Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of these traits. And you just look back at, at verses 7 and 8, and all of these that a guy isn't, and all of these that, that somebody is. Think of any person that could be described like this. Wouldn't you want to be around that kind of person? Wouldn't you trust that kind of person and, and, and listen to their teaching and their leadership? I would. Just, just one more last observation about all of the, all of this list. It's really important that we can forget. Paul values character more than he values skill. Paul values character more than he values skill. Another pastor, Tim Chester, offers two reasons why it's wise to value character more than skill. First off, if you have skill but don't have character, you'll end up using your skill in destructive and selfish ways. Second off, failing to teach truth usually begins with a failure of character. Just a couple of verses, verse 11, Titus 1. Paul talks about false teachers. What motivates them? Is it that they've looked at the books again and, and said, oh, we got it wrong. I think it's something else. Well, maybe it could be that. The motivation that Paul points out is that they are greedy for gain. It's a character flaw that, that shapes their bad theology. So here's how this works. Either your theology will bend your morality into shape, or your bad morality will bend your theology out of shape. Paul wants them to have models of how the gospel shapes a person. And maybe just a humble pastoral word of warning. Please be careful about worldly values for leadership bleeding into the church. Many valued political leaders were pragmatic, territorial, arrogant, just downright cruel and angry. My friends, this can easily and has already begun to bleed into the church. You say, well, we've tried all this kind stuff. That doesn't work. And these are different times. Desperate times call for desperate measures. We want a guy who will actually get us results, who will fight for us. Paul tells Titus, you want a guy who has character. Value character over skill. You want men who are softened and strengthened by the gospel. What do the churches in Crete need in order to be established, in order to survive over the long haul, to grow? Well, they need pastors. They need pastors who provide order, who provide care, who provide a model of Christ-like character. And Paul wraps up his qualifications for pastors in verse 9. He says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul wants pastors who are shaped by the gospel, but he also wants pastors who can shape others with the gospel. So the why behind verse 9 is that he wants the churches in Crete to receive sound instruction. Instruction grows Christians. 
instruction guards and defends Christians. But notice here, you have to pay attention. Paul even doesn't emphasize skill or ability, even when he talks about teaching. So yes, a pastor should be trained to know the truth well enough in order to explain it effectively, in order to defend it from false teaching. But what does Paul say first? He says a pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. That doesn't sound like a skill to me. That sounds like how much a guy embraces the truth. The truth should be seared, driven down into this man's heart. I think of men, I listened to this past week uh, on a podcast with the Gospel Coalition, men like Luke, Dari, Rama, and Ramazan. These men are pastors from Afghanistan. These men have endured interrogation. They've endured their homes being raided. They've endured imprisonment. They've endured beatings in prison. They've endured their families being under surveillance. They've endured being forced to flee from their homes time and time again for the sake of following Christ. These men have held firmly to the truth. The trustworthy word is taught. For these men, Jesus and his gospel have proven trustworthy, reliable, and incomparably precious. And it is out of it, it is out of that holding firm to the truth that these men will be even better pastors. They will instruct other people with greater passion. They will defend the gospel with greater sincerity because they know personally that it is life or death to hold on to Jesus as he is revealed in the scriptures. They must hold firmly to the truth. Now we started late, that's why we're ending late, but I got five applications to go. Five questions, just briefly, five questions, because I want us to know, we've had applications around, I want us to know how should we respond to this. Question number one, question for you. Do you have pastors do you have pastors? Yeah. A lot of you do. It was more of a rhetorical question. Thank you. <laughs> That's okay. The question behind it, have you voluntarily come under the care and oversight of a church? Come under the care of pastors. That's what it means to become a member of a church. Do you have pastors who you know? Pastors who know you? who've committed to pray for you, who love you, who help you. Now, I know if, if that's not the case, if you don't have pastors, that there are a number of things that, that can prevent that from being in place. But to have pastors is God's command for you. But I hope we've convinced you this morning that to have pastors is God's good for you also. We would be privileged and honored, I speak for myself and Bill and Randall, to be your pastors. Second question, I'm gonna coin a word in it. Are you pastorable? <laughs> Are you pastorable? Are you able to be pastor? Clarify, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says that pastors are to care for Christians with patience. 1 Timothy 4.2 says pastors are to preach the word with patience. We get it, we need patience. 
However, let me, let me tell you something. Pastoring, like any relationship, is a two-way street. Y'all, we can only pastor you as well as you'll let us pastor you. I quoted Hebrews 13, 17 earlier. I only quote it because it's relevant. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Members of this church, by God's grace, you are pastoral. You follow this verse very well. It is a joy to be your pastor. But as a reminder, we can only pastor as well as you allow us to. Friends, we have to give an account to God for you. Would you please help us do our jobs well? For our sakes and for yours, brothers and sisters, we are not your interrogators. We are your pastors. So when we ask you how you're doing, when we reach out, you can be honest and say, you can ask for prayer. Are you pastorable? My friend, are you teachable? Or do you think that you already know everything? Dare I say, consider taking a note or two during sermon and Bible study. Are you always pointing out with what's wrong with other people? With how the church can do better? We're not allergic to feedback. It's helpful. It's okay. But do you leave room for self-examination? Do you leave room for asking for help? Do you leave room for listening? And this same question goes for me, it goes for Bill, it goes for Randall. Guys, are we pastorable? We are Christ's sheep, not Christ's supermen. Question number three, short. How do you measure against these qualities listed here? Verses seven and eight. How do you measure against these? Maybe pick out one, if you've got your own Bible, circle one and say, God, I want help with this. I'm doing too much of it, or I'm not doing enough of it. Question number four, brothers. Do you want to be a pastor, an elder? First Timothy 3, verse 1 says that anyone who desires to the office of an overseer desires a noble task. Paul tells about the type of men to, that he's to appoint as elders. Notice Paul doesn't tell Titus, Titus, make these guys an elder, and then they'll start showing all of these qualities. That's not how it works. He tells Titus, look at the guys who are showing these qualities, and then make them elders. You don't need a title to display these qualities or teach and help others follow Jesus. In fact, if you are just hankering for a title, I would point you to James 3, verse 1, which says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Last question, number five. What is a pastor? What's a pastor? I was playing basketball in this parking lot a couple of weeks ago with middle schoolers, and uh, one of the kids very sweetly asked me, hey, do you own uh, the building? <laughs> if you're wondering, I don't. <laughs> I told them that, and I said, no, I'm, I'm one of the pastors at the church. Uh, and then he said, well, what's a pastor? And I just assumed everybody know it. And here's a little plug. Hang out with people who don't go to church, and you'll actually have to explain what you believe. What's a 
I tried to explain it to him in a way that he would understand, so I settled on, well, pastors are like leaders in the church. And I guess that's true. I guess he probably understood and comprehended that. But I think I could have done so much better. It could have been an opportunity. I could have told him that pastor is simply another word for shepherd. And we use that word because we want to reflect Jesus, our ultimate shepherd. We even want to be an extension of Jesus, our ultimate pastor. We read earlier that Jesus is the good shepherd who blesses his people with his authority and his leadership because he leads by serving. He lays down his life for the sheep so that they can be forgiven. He protects them from those who would snatch them away. He gives them rest for their weary souls. Jesus is a shepherd who will never leave his sheep. Jesus is a shepherd who will lead them to green pastures and still waters. Jesus is the shepherd who will dwell with them in the house of the Lord forever. So a mere human pastor is just one small reflection and extension of Jesus, the great pastor. A mere human pastor helps Jesus' sheep to stay close to their good shepherd. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word that is lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, may you cause uh, cause us to stir it up in our hearts that we might not sin against you. God, teach us the truth that you mean to do us good by giving human authority. Lord, we pray for our elders, myself included, that we would steward our positions as you intend us, to bless your people, to give them order, good care, models of the gospel, sound instruction. Set up even this church for long-term stability, faithfulness, and fruitfulness by pastors, even the ones who aren't here yet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond to the Lord's Supper.